the headlines in today's daily papers remind us every time we look at one that our world is in a continual state of turmoil. How many would agree with that? Human beings we find every day are the victims of some kind of a national or a natural disaster or some type of a hate crime. And at some point in each and every one of our lives, sooner or later, our own individual peace and security will be assaulted. If we live long enough, that will happen to us. Many people mistakenly believe that they can avoid the trials that eventually will come. The investor, for example, may have deceived himself into thinking that just one more dollar will buy him stability. The homeowner might think that, you know, perhaps by having a bigger and a stronger home, he will be better insulated from the storms of life. And others seek their security, for example, in their jobs or in their position in society, in their status, or in their power. And many even seek for their stability and security in life in a personal relationship of some type. Yet the answer does not come in some vain and futile attempt to find something in this world that will keep out life's trials and troubles and pains and sorrows. The answer really rests in finding our peace and our security in someone beyond this world, someone who can give us the strength to endure regardless of the storms which may hit us, someone who has already defeated and overcome the worst that this world has to offer. And that someone, of course, is who? Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Lord Jesus never, ever promised us, I think of this song, a rose garden. He never promised us a rose garden. He never promised us that we would be excluded or excused from life's trials. We've had a, a very horrible reminder of that this week here in this church family, haven't we? Something very, very sorrowful. But God never promised us that we would be excused from the pains and the trials and the hurts of life. He certainly wasn't, was he? Rather, he did promise us his peace, his peace, God's peace, would be with us in the midst of those trials and in the midst of this topsy-turvy world which we live in. In addition, his, his peace, of course, even extends beyond this world and heals the division which has occurred between a holy God and a sinful people. And it is, of course, only when we confess our sinfulness and our need of a Savior and trust in Christ that we will experience not only peace with God when we are born again into his kingdom and become a member of his family, but we can also experience the peace of God, that peace which passes all understanding, the peace that the world cannot understand that only a Christian can experience when they're going through trials and troubles. The Holy Spirit, you see, will come, and he will indwell, live within the one who has trusted in Christ's atoning death on his behalf. And the Holy Spirit will be the one who will provide the stability that we need in order, order to weather the worst of life's storms. So God alone offers lasting peace. The world at best, can only offer us disappointments. Right? Right. At very best, it can only offer us disappointments. Unless you would leave this world as a child, as a young child, otherwise you are going to face many, many disappointments. And the older you get, the more you face. Now, the reason I have shared this morning... <clears throat> the truth of the gospel message with you is because as we begin our new study of the book of Revelation, um, before we can really learn and before we can know and understand God's word, it is vital that we need to know God. 
We need to know him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Without having been born again into his kingdom, without having been regenerated, without having been saved, there is no way that we can possibly begin to understand the Bible, any bit of the Bible, but particularly a book such as the book of Revelation, which is so full of symbolism and seems to so many, as we talked about last week, to be such a mystery. It will appear, if we do not have the indwelling spirit of God within us, it will appear to be as foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that the natural man, and who is the natural man? He's the unsaved, unregenerate man. The carnal man, the worldly man, the man who is not born again into God's kingdom. The natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God in the Word of God because they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they have to be, what? Spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit is the true teacher of the Word of God. I am not really the teacher. I am the Holy Spirit's instrument. It is the Holy Spirit who takes the Word of God and teaches you the truths of his Word. And so without the Holy Spirit indwelling our hearts and our souls and our minds, the things that we will be looking at this coming year will appear to us as foolishness. They will not be understood. Atheists and agnostics and Christ mockers and Christ haters and unbelievers and skeptics and all those type of people do not have spiritual ears. And therefore... To them, the book of Revelation is a mystery. It is foolishness. So this year's study is not really primarily evangelistic in nature. Since we are studying a book um, that was specifically written to God's servants, we see that right away in Revelation 1.1. It was written to God's servants. In other words, it was written to those who know the Lord and serve him, those who have spiritual ears to hear. This isn't a book which is to be approached with an unregenerate intellect. You do not try to come to this book with your intellect. It's a book which is to be approached with a saved and a submissive heart and spirit. And yet, in case any of you may be wondering, if this means that you should not invite your friends who may not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to say up front, the very beginning, by all means, you should bring your unsaved friends to this study of Revelation. Why is that? Well, because even though the book itself was not intended for unbelievers, the Christ of the book was. Remember we said he is the subject, the author, the giver, he's everything in the book. He was intended for unbelievers. And once a person meets the Christ of this book, then the book will also be his or hers. So do please bring your friends who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. We will welcome them with open arms. It will appear to them as foolishness, but the Spirit of God, if he brings them here, may begin to work and draw on their hearts and draw them to, draw them to himself. Well, the very first phase of this book tells us clearly, oh, I forgot my little rabbit, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Isn't he cute? (laughs) The very first phase of this book, the book of Revelation, tells us very clearly that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible, you might want to look at Revelation 1.1 because it does say the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, many Bible editors have incorrectly given us their uninspired title for this book. If you'll look at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, what does your Bible at the heading, what does it call this book, some of you? To John, somebody else? That's actually correct, the Revelation to John. St. John, a lot of Bibles say the revelation of St. John the Divine. You see that? It was in several of my Bibles. 
That is an uninspired, inaccurate title for this book. The editors of the Bible must have failed to read the very first verse. Because as I just said, it says what? The revelation. And notice it is singular, not the revelations. The revelation of who? Not St. John the Divine, of Jesus Christ. So just remember that. It isn't the, and I don't know where they get the title, the divine, either, because John was not divine. Jesus Christ is divine. Well, anyway, these words tell us that this book is even more than just being a book about Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, he is not only the main character in this book, but he is the theme of the book. And he is the giver of the book, which we'll probably discuss next week. He is the giver of the revelation about and of himself. This book is the record of the full and final glory of the Lord Jesus. It is the revealing or the unveiling of Christ in all of his total splendor and and glory. Anyone who does not read or understand Revelation, the last book in the Bible, really only has half of the story, half of the picture of Jesus Christ. And uh, I I mentioned in our last week's introduction, and if you didn't get that, you can pick up the cassette tape. I don't know if we've told you that, but any of you new ladies, anytime you miss a message, especially during this study, I would encourage you to pick up the week's tape that you missed because um, this is going to be one of those studies where you really need to stay in the flow of what we're talking about because even if you miss one week, especially when we get into judgments and things like that, you're going to need to keep up with us because we can lose you in a hurry. With the life of Christ, it wasn't quite so vital. But in Revelation, please, and they're only a dollar. If you can't afford a dollar, just borrow the tape for a week and bring it back. Okay, but I would like you to stay up with us in this study. But in last week's tape, in uh, the introduction, I mean... I talked about how Christ came to the earth the first time, of course, in his incarnation, and he came in meekness, didn't he? He came in humility with his divine glory veiled. It was only unveiled once, very briefly, and that was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, only before three of the disciples. The first time he came to be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Philippians 2.8. Even though he was God manifest in flesh, and even though he demonstrated that he was God manifest in flesh, and even though he proved it in a thousand different ways, yet only those with the eyes of faith recognized him. He was perfect in every way. We looked at that over and over again through those eight years of our study of his life. He was perfect in his character. He was perfect in his conduct. He was perfect in his attitude. He was perfect in his actions, his motives, his words, his thoughts. And still, even his own half-brothers didn't know him. And even his own disciples weren't quite sure who he really was until after his resurrection when they finally realized the fullness of his deity. So the world at large was blind to his true identity. It offered him a cave and a cattle trough for his birth and a crown of thorns and a cross at his death. However, see that was only half of the picture in the New Testament. There is a day which is very soon approaching when he will return with all of his glory totally unveiled. This next time, he will no longer wear a thorny crown. This next time, the cry of men will be, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. He won't come this next time to die on a cross, but to sit on a glorious throne and rule over this earth for a thousand years. He won't come as a savior to die, but as a judge to rule. He won't come in meekness riding on the foal of an ass. Instead, the next time he comes, he will come as a conqueror riding on a white horse, which we will look at in chapter 19. The next time, Jesus will not come to be beaten with rods, but to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Furthermore, the first time Jesus came, his own received him not. 
But the second time he comes, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, essentially, we have four goals for our study, and not four, three. Three goals for our Revelation study this year and perhaps even on to next year at the rate I'm going here. Our first and foremost goal we've already sort of talked about, and that is that nobody will complete this study without having a personal relationship in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you know in your heart, and only you really can know that, if you, if you know that you do not have that personal saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I am telling you ahead of time that this is our greatest desire. Our greatest desire the leadership of this ministry and even our sisters in Christ who are part of this ministry, all of us together want to see you come to know him during this year. And of course, we don't know who you are, and it isn't our uh, plan to high pressure anyone. Anyone who's been coming to this Bible study for any length of time knows that we do not high pressure you into accepting the Lord Jesus Christ because that's not our job. We can't high pressure anyone into being saved. That job, that task, is the task of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who draws you to the Savior through the Word of God. And He is the one, whether you realize it or not, who has gotten you here in the first place. And He will be the one, not me or not your leader. We may be instruments that He uses along the way, but the bottom line is that He is the one who will draw you to the Lord Jesus through his word, through Jesus' word. And you will know when Christ is knocking <clears throat> at the door to your heart. You will know. I don't know how you'll know, but you'll just know. Sometimes your heart beats fast and you know it's him knocking. You know, he said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door. See, he's a gentleman. You have to be the one who opens the door and lets him in. He's, his promise is that he will come in. He said, not I might come in, I will come in and fellowship with you. He will sup with you and you with him. So you will know when he's knocking at the door of your heart. If you don't know him, perhaps he's doing it even now, saying, let me in. I want to be the king over your life. I want to give you that peace with God and the peace of God. And if he does knock at your heart, and you do open, and I pray that you do, because it's the greatest decision you can ever make in your life, one you will never, ever regret. If you do open the heart, your heart's door and let him in, would you please just let us know about it? You know, let your leader know or come up to me, because we want to rejoice that your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Share that with us so we can rejoice with you. All right, now that, so that's the first goal, is that everyone in this study will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ if they don't know him already. The second goal is to present the book of Revelation as clearly as possible. So pray for me, particularly in this, because uh, I want to do as clear a job as I possibly can. First of all, we're going to do that in a general way. I'll give you a general format, probably beginning next week. <clears throat> because it's necessary for us to get the big overall picture and flow of the book before we then get into the specifics. And that will be the second part of presenting the book. I'll do the big general overview picture in one lesson, and then we'll begin to do an exegetical study, which means a verse-by-verse -verse through every one of the 22 chapters of the book study. We'll look at every verse and see what it means, and even sometimes have to do a word study to see what an, a word originally meant in the Greek language. So that's our second goal. Then our third goal is to show where possible, and this is the exciting part, how the events occurring on today's contemporary scene, how they not only relate to the prophecies which we read about in the book of Revelation and in other scriptural prophecies, because Revelation is not the only place in the Bible where we find end times prophecies. They're scattered throughout the Old Testament. We looked at the Olivet Discourse last year, which is in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. That has um, prophecy about the future as well. So as we um, 
look at these prophecies scattered throughout the scripture we're going to look at today's scene and what's going on in the world and relate them to the scripture and then we will see how they will all finally culminate how everything will finally come together and how it will end and how you know the lord will come back set up his millennial kingdom and then eventually usher all of us into the eternal state and what that eternal state is going to be like because the bible actually tells us So those are our goals. But now we ask, those are our goals. Now we ask, what does the scripture itself say was the purpose for the book of Revelation? And again, the answer is given to us right there in that very first verse where it says that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. So who gave the revelation? God gave it to Christ. Then it says to show unto his servants... That's you and me, if you know the Lord. Things which must shortly come to pass. Now, the Greek word for shortly is entahi. And that word really means not shortly, but quickly or suddenly coming to pass. So the idea here was not that the events described in this book, the book of Revelation, would occur soon. Because if that was the case... It would be incorrect. John wrote this 2,000 years ago, or 1,900 years ago, because he wrote it at the end of the first century. So they obviously didn't occur soon, but rather it means that when they do occur, they will happen suddenly, and they will happen in rapid-fire succession, which is exactly what we see takes place when all those judgments begin to fall. And, of course, it it does happen within just a seven-year period, so it does happen Um, Suddenly, Just seven years is all it takes. So then the purpose for the book of Revelation is to show beforehand to believers, to servants, to those who have spiritual ears to hear, to show them those things which will suddenly and rapidly occur. Now the translation of the word revelation is the Greek word apokalypsis. And what do we, how do we say that in English? Apocalyptic. This is apocalyptic literature. That's a mouthful. But the Greek word is apokalypsis, and it literally means an unveiling. This is the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to show or to expose to to view. Um, If you remember, I had the word apokalypsis and revelation written on there, but it wore off. Do you remember last year, our last meeting, there was a beautiful garden statue of an angel that was had a sheet over it, and you, la- you ladies had pooled your money together to, to purchase that for me because I collect angels, which my husband has said, said is getting out of hand. <laughs> Not only are they all over the house, now they're out in the garden too. But you gave me that beautiful statue, but I had no idea what it was until Terry walked over there, and remember what she did? She unveiled it. That's what the word revelation means, or apocalypsis. The unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ is what this book is all about. In this book, the person of Christ is unveiled in the fullness of his glory and his power and his majesty. And we are given view after view after view of him who fills all of heaven, all of the universe with his glory and his presence and his praise. So the ver- the first verse of this book tells us that the purpose of it is to show God's people the unveiled glory of Christ and the things of the future before they actually occur. So the emphasis of the book is on the person of Christ and on future events. Now, the word shortly or speedily that we just talked about raises a very important question which at this point we must address in some detail, really before we can get on into the rest of the text of the book. And this question is a matter of interpretation. And this is not an easy matter because there have been many varying views about how to go about interpreting the book of Revelation. It's eschatology 
is a word which means the study of, it's very easy, the study of end times events. I know you probably can't see. Well, yeah, you can see the little writing on that. That's just a chart of the end times events that we'll be looking at. This is a very, very important matter that we're going to be looking at this morning. It's the question of the method to be employed in the interpretation of eschatological scriptures or end time scriptures. The question of a literal versus an allegorical or a figurative interpretation is one that I felt that we really need to, right here at the onset of our study, look at. Hermeneutics. Have you heard that word before? I'm giving you a lot of words. They're all in your notes. Um, You'll have them for homework, so maybe you'll get, if you don't know these words, you'll get familiar with them as we go on. Hermeneutics is the study or the branch of theology which deals with the interpretation of Scripture. So it's just a word which means how one goes about interpreting Scripture. And it's very, very important to know how you go about interpreting Scripture and why. Why do you take a literal interpretation? Why do you use, you know, take the Bible literally? Or why do you take it allegorically? Well, we need to know these things and decide, each one of you individually need to decide which interpretation that you like that you think is most scriptural, I shouldn't say. It doesn't matter what we like. Which one is most scriptural? And, um, you know, go with it. I've done a lot of research over the years, and I know which way I believe and why I believe, and I believe that the way I believe is the most scriptural. So that's what I want to do for the rest of our morning session. I'm going to give you the four basic schools of interpretation with regard to the book of Revelation. There are four basic ones. There's a lot of, you know, kind of combined ones where they take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but those are sort of impure. These are the four pure ones. And by pure, I don't necessarily mean they're correct, but they're the the basic ones that you'll find as you go around talking to different people and going to different denominations or whatever, or reading different books. Because if you read a book that has a totally different interpretation than what I'm teaching you here, you'll really be confused. And you'll say, well, why does this book say this? And she's teaching this. Well, it's a matter of interpretation. First of all, I'm going to explain to you what each of these four schools teach, what their interpretation is, and then what I want to do is look at some of the pros and some of the cons of each one of those interpretations. And then in conclusion, which will be next week's lesson, I'm going to share with you the view that I hold to and why I hold to it. And unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you want to look at it, I am the teacher here, and so this is going to be the view that I am going to be using as we go through the book of Revelation. So again, I'm telling you this up front, so if any of you really, really have a problem with the way I am going to be interpreting it, you might want to, you know, leave the Bible. I hope you don't want to because I really do believe this is the correct one, but if you are going to get upset with me, go ahead and, you know, drop out now. Okay, our, the first school of interpretation is known as the idealist school of interpretation, and others have called it the non-literal or the allegorical approach. All of this is in the notes I will be giving you, so... You can maybe just concentrate. You don't have to take notes if you don't want to. Now, this point of view originated in the Alexandrian school of theology, which in the early church was considered as heretical. Yet, this school did influence such men as Jerome and Augustine, who perhaps you have heard of. Now, those who are of the idealist school regard the book of Revelation as one great allegory. In other words, they believe that everything in the book should be taken figuratively or metaphorically. They say that John was talking about a spiritual conflict and not about physical experiences of the future. They see it as a book which presents in a symbolic way the conflict between Christianity 
and evil, or the conflict between, as Augustine put it, between the city of God versus the city of Satan. So, to an idealist, the book of Revelation is not intended at all to protect to predict the future, but it is a pictorial unfolding of the universal and the age-long conflict between good and evil. And they say that the main message of this book is that the good side, which is Christianity, that the good side eventually wins. Now, this view is held by most amillennialists. What does the word ah well, it's just a letter, really. When it's in front of a word, what does it mean? Like, ah, moral. That means they don't have any or none. An ah, millennialist is a person who does not believe that there is a literal 1,000. Millennial is the word for 1,000. Millennium. That they, they don't believe that there is a literal 1,000-year kingdom on earth. But they believe that this present age is the millennial kingdom. That is an amillennialist. So most amillennialists are idealists. And it is also a view which is held by postmillennialists. And a postmillennialist is one who believes that this world is going to get progressively better and better until it finally climaxes in a golden age of 1,000 years. Christ will not be reigning literally over this earth during those thousand years. He will return at the end. This is what they teach. A post-millennialist teaches this. But I must tell you that after the two world wars which we had in this century and with the increasing evil in the world around us, the post-millennial view has really lost a lot of its popularity, and understandably, because they did teach that the world will get better and better until we finally go right on into the golden age of the thousand-year kingdom. But they have lost a lot of their thrust in this last century, and it's very hard to find a post-millennialist anymore. But there are a lot of amillennialists, those who do not believe in a literal kingdom here on earth at all. Well, in favor of this idealist school of interpretation or this allegorical school, I want to give you three points. First of all, it has the spiritual value of encouraging Christians since it does tell us that the good side, you know, Christianity wins in the end. So it does, at least this view encourages the Christian by saying, yes, eventually we will win over evil. Secondly, it does rightly emphasize the centrality and the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ because it sees him as the one who does conquer over evil and does rule in the end. Even though he doesn't rule during the kingdom, he comes to rule during the eternal state. Third, it also rightly emphasizes the providence of God because it sees that God is the one in control of history. It is his story. They see that, and they see that God will ultimately win over the evil forces of this world. Those are the pros. Well, the negatives about this particular school of interpretation are basically twofold. First of all, it loses all of the detail of the book of Revelation. The general is valued at the expense of the specific. Details are ignored, and they are cast aside as merely fictional uh, stories and unimportant symbolic pictures. So details are not important to the idealist. They kind of get in the way, actually. The allegorical method really doesn't even bother to interpret the book of Revelation or other apocalyptic literature. Its habit instead is to disregard the common significance of the words in the books or in the prophecies and instead to produce all kinds of fanciful speculations. So as a system, it really puts itself beyond all the well-defined principles and laws of hermeneutics, which is the study of interpretation. It puts itself beyond that. 
It produces an unlimited scope for the fanciful because the only basis for exposition, you know, telling us what the verses mean, is found in the imagination of the one expositing, the one doing the teaching. And this produces a very serious danger, which is that the authority in interpreting ceases to be the word of God and instead becomes the mind of the interpreter. You see, it's not what the, the authority, the final authority is not the word of God. It's what the one interpreting the word of God says that this means. Well, you can't really believe that that word means that word. I'll tell you what it really means. So you see, it takes away the authority from God's word. So that is the worst problem with this method of interpretation is that it takes the authority away from the scripture and places it instead into the mind of the interpreter. I told you this was going to be a technical lesson. It gets worse. All right. A second negative with regard to this idealist school of interpretation is that it, it, it totally eliminates the supernatural in predictive prophecy. This method denies that revelation predicts the future. Most of these people do not believe in the supernatural in Scripture. They are the ones that, you know, try to explain everything that is supernatural in Scripture. So they say, no, 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 there's nothing predictive in these Scriptures, in the whole book of Revelation at all. It's just a big picture story to tell us that eventually God wins over Satan. So they, um, they are anti-supernatural. They don't see any literal fulfillment in any of the details of the book of Revelation or those described by John. Now, because idealists do not believe in a literal 1,000-year kingdom of Christ here on earth, they are forced. See, this is their preconception. This is how they come into the book of Revelation. I'm an amillennialist. I don't believe in a literal kingdom. Therefore, I have to interpret the book of Revelation the way I do. I have to spiritualize everything away because very clearly the book of Revelation tells us that Christ does return and sets up a 1,000-year kingdom. So the only way to get rid of that is to spiritualize it away and say it doesn't really mean that. But me tell you what it really means. Now, since I do believe in a God who can predict the future down to the very minutest detail, as he really has already proven numerous, numerous times throughout the course of history, as many of his prophecies have already been fulfilled in history past, and they have been fulfilled literally, and they have been fulfilled down to the detail given. And since I also do believe that every jot and every tittle of the Word of God is important, and consequently details are not to be swept aside or ignored or considered irrelevant, I won't be using the idealist school of interpretation as we look at the book of Revelation. So if you are a firm idealist, I'm telling you up front, this is not the way I'll be viewing it or looking at it, interpreting it. If I was to use this method, it really would make my job a whole lot easier because I could just teach you the book right now. I could say, ladies, there's no sense in going through this book verse by verse um, because everything John told us was just merely a big picture story that tells us that good wins over evil. So hang on to your faith in Christ because in the long run we will win. And if you'll just all hang around here for a number of years, I don't know exactly how many, eventually he's going to come and take us to be with him in heaven. Okay, we're finished with the book of Revelation. You can all go home. For the book of Revelation is known as the preterist view. I'm not sure if that's how it's pronounced, but that's the way I'm going to pronounce it. Now, this view holds to the method of interpretation, which, which states that Revelation is a description of the problems and the persecutions which the early church experienced with Judaism and with paganism under the iron fist of Rome. The judgments of Revelation, which we'll be looking at in chapters 4 through 16, 
you know, the, the trumpets and the, um, the seals, the trumpets and the bowl judgments, as we look at those, they say that those judgments are the judgments of God which were to fall upon imperial Rome in order to vindicate the persecution of the Christians. So the preterist believes that John was speaking of the events of his own day, which was about 96 AD, very end of the first century, was when John wrote the book of Revelation. So preterists teach that all of the events of the book of Revelation have already occurred. They occurred in the first and in the second centuries, beginning, they say, with the Christian persecutions under the emperor Nero, whom they identify as the Antichrist. Nero is the Antichrist. Some have said, no, it wasn't Nero. It was the next emperor, Domitian. He was the Antichrist. However, the truth of the matter is that neither Nero nor Domitian meet the requirements of the Antichrist that we find recorded for us in the book of Revelation. And in favor of this view is the fact that it does stress for us the historical background of the book of Revelation. And this will, this is very helpful to us, those who have done research, the preterists who have done research, help us out as we look at the history of the church in um, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And that was the only positive that I could come up with. The negatives, however, are, first of all, as with the idealist school of interpretation, the preterist is anti-supernatural. He questions the ability of Revelation's author to predict the future, to predict into the end times. And this is the view, by the way, which is held by most liberals and by most neo-Orthodox theologians. Preterists do not see any prophecies in Revelation which have to do with the Lord's second coming. How they get around that, I honestly don't know if you read chapter 19. But again, they just have to sort of explain everything away and say that that happened back in the first or the second century um, A.D. Now, since according, secondly, the second negative is that since according to the preterist, Revelation was written for the early Christian church. It really is viewed as having little or no significant meaning for those of us living in the present. It really hasn't had much meaning for any Christians living past the second century. And that is why there are very... Remember last week I told you that there are so few seminaries and so few pastors nowadays, especially in this country, who teach the book of of um, liberation, <laughs> of revelation. And that's because um, this, is, this is why there are so very few liberals. That's a word I had in my mind. Why there are so very few liberals and neo-Orthodox um, pastors and seminaries which bother to teach it or which bother to study it. Because they, I mean, why bother if you see that there is no significance in the book for us today? You know, you'd be better off spending your time studying the epistles. And this is what they believe. They believe it's all past. There's nothing future in the book. And so they don't bother to study it. Yet, the scripture tells me in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be what? Perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Well, that to me tells me that um, God would not have included this book in the Bible if he did not intend for us to study it and read it and to use it for doctrine and for all these other things that we mentioned and for instruction in righteousness. And this is for all men of all ages. Well, thirdly, this view has proven to be wrong because Nero and Domitian, either one of them, turned out not to be the Antichrist. That is very clear from history. 
Um, and also the judgments found in the book of Revelation have never occurred to the global magnitude. I mean, as we study these, we'll find that they're affecting one-third of the earth and one-fourth of the earth and one-half of the population. Well, none of these um, judgments have ever affected in all of history the earth to that magnitude and to the detail that are given to us in the book of Revelation. So it really has proven to be a false interpretation. Well, a third school of interpretation is that of the historicists. And adherence to this method of interpreting consider Revelation as a symbolic presentation of the whole of church history. In other words, not like the preterists, just the first and second century, but they see it as a symbolic, not a literal, but a symbolic presentation of the whole of church history. Now, this is a very important school of interpretation for us to look at for a few minutes here because historicists do dominate many of our churches today. There are more pulpits filled by historicists than there are by futurists, which is what I am, one who sees the book of Revelation as yet future, except for chapters 2 and 3, and one who takes the Bible literally, except where it's obviously symbolic, and then we use the Bible to interpret the symbols because we can always go back and find out what those symbols represent. That's what I'll talk about next week is the futurist view. But we are dominated in our society by historicists, so we need to consider what they believe. They claim that the judgments which occur in Revelation chapters 4 to 16 have been continually happening for centuries now. Well, for 2,000 years already, that these judgments are continually happening. However, I have a problem with that because the book of Revelation, as well as the book of Daniel, clearly tell us that the events, which we will read about in chapters 4 to 16, take place during a specific period of time. And they both name that this is a seven-year period of time. And I believe that when God says seven years, he means seven years not 2,000 years plus, because they say it's continually happening. Furthermore, historicists see no future for the nation of Israel, which would result, if that's what you believe, that means that God does not, he will not, has not kept his promises made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, his Palestinian covenant promises to Israel that they will one day you know, well, that they will possess the land, you know, forever and ever, um, that he will break his covenant to David. So if you, if you believe this, you have to believe that God basically is not keeping his promises to Israel and to Israel's seed. They see no distinction between the nation of Israel and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ which again, only a spiritualized interpretation of Scripture can produce. Because where Israel is mentioned in the New Testament, they have to say, no, it doesn't mean Israel, it means the church. That, to me, is not a literal interpretation. Also, historicists do not believe that Christ will come back to reign literally on earth, as God promised David, but that Christ instead is reigning spiritually from the believer's heart. And see, what they don't understand is the inter-advent mystery kingdom, which is what we are living in. Remember when we studied the mystery kingdom parables of Matthew chapter 13? There's so much confusion when people don't understand. When Christ said that the kingdom is within you, that's true for the age we're living in right now. But he is going to fulfill his promises to Israel and come back and literally reign in Jerusalem. Because we have a God who keeps his promises, not only to Israel, but he keeps his promises to the church. If you don't understand about the mystery kingdom, the inter-advent period that you and I are living in, you need to get, we have a little mini-series on the mystery kingdom parables, which really explains that difference. 
But most of these historicists are amillennialists. Now, what is an amillennialist? Doesn't believe in what? And a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. Okay. Well, there are some pros for this historicist view. First of all, there are many godly men and women who do believe in this view. There have been many down through the church age who have believed in this view. Secondly, it is true that there is an analogy between the history of the church and the book of Revelation. And as we will study it, we'll see that the history of the church age is presented to us in a prophetic panorama, but only in chapters 2 and 3. After chapter 3, we are looking at the future, okay? But they don't see that. They see the whole thing as in the church age. Thirdly, the historicist view does stress the sovereignty of God in history. Now, the negatives about this view. First of all, there is little, if any, agreement among those who hold to this view. There are hardly any two historicists who agree 100% on their interpretations of all the various features and the details of the book of Revelation. They very seldom agree on the actual historicity. Remember, they say that the book of Revelation has been um, being fulfilled throughout the past 2,000 years. Well, very, very few of them agree on the actual historical incident which was supposedly to have fulfilled each successive prophecy found in Revelation. Now, I know that's confusing, so I'll give you an example. In Revelation 9, verse 1, John told us of locusts, you know, the insect, of locusts coming out of the abyss. Well, some, have, some historicists have interpreted those locusts to be the Goths in history past. They were the locusts. Others have insisted that the locusts were the Persians, while others have said, no, they were the Muslims. And yet others have said, no, the locusts just represent agnostics in general. Anyone who's an agnostic is a locust coming out of the abyss. So there is very, very little agreement among those who hold to the historicist method of interpretation. Now, the reason for their difficulty in getting together on their ideas about who and what fulfilled the various prophecies of Revelation is because they are attempting to place prophecies into people and times in the past when the truth of the matter is that those prophecies are yet future. So they're up against a rock and a hard place to begin with. You see, once prophecy has been fulfilled, it becomes crystal clear. You know, a hundred, uh, hindsight has 20-20 vision, right? Then there's no problem. Everybody agrees. For example, no one understood ahead of time how the Messiah could be born in Bethlehem, which is down in the southern province of Judah, how he could be born in Bethlehem, as Micah 5.2 predicts, how he could come out of Egypt, as Hosea predicts, and yet how he could be called a Nazarene, because Nazareth is up in the northern province, a province of Galilee. But, see, nobody said, well, how, nobody could figure that out. How could, there, how could the Messiah come from three different places? Is there, are there three Messiahs? I mean, it was just a mystery to them. Well, historicists would have had fun. You know, some of the, they would have said it was this and this and this, and nobody would have agreed. But after the coming of Christ, everything fell together, didn't it? We can all look back at it now and see how Jesus Christ fulfilled all three of those prophecies. So the historicists would be united. They would be united in their conclusions about who and what fulfilled the various prophecies of Revelation if those prophecies had already been fulfilled, as they claim. See, that would have brought them all together immediately. So what's the conclusion? I, my conclusion is that those prophecies have not yet been fulfilled, and that's why no two of them can agree. Well, another problem with the historicist view is that it sees no distinction between Israel and the church. And this is a 
this is a big, big, big major study. And it's one that I could probably do a whole series of lessons on. I wish I had the time because it is such a, it's an important part of our knowledge of future, of the future and of our doctrine. But I don't have the time. If any of you want some material to do more research on this for your own, I have some uh, books I can recommend to you and that sort of thing. But I just need to be very succinct this morning and tell you what, you know, what I can in the time remaining here. Historicists believe that God is finished with Israel. They believe that all his promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and the Palestinian covenant and all those things will be made instead to the church. And if this was true, and if God was to reject Israel, or allow her to perish totally as a nation from this earth, then I see it as a matter of him violating his own sovereign choice and a betrayal of Abraham, actually, and David and all those other fellows. In anticipation of people saying that God had permanently abandoned Israel, the Apostle Paul himself who was a Jew, told us in Romans 11.29 that God's calling of Israel is to be, to be his special people is, it can't be revoked. Irrevo- I knew I wouldn't be irrevocable. <laughs> irrevocable. There you go. That it was irrevocable. In other words, it couldn't be revoked. His promises to, I mean, see, Paul knew through the Holy Spirit that people would say this that they would say God is finished with Israel. They rejected his son, so he has cut him off. Well, he has cut him off, but it's temporary. In the meantime, he is dealing, he's using the church as his agent in the world. But he isn't finished completely with Israel. And I think we've had proof of that in our century when, in 1948, he brought the nation back to the land. He is going to keep his promises to Israel. But Paul said it's irrevocable. If God is no longer interested in Israel, and if God has totally replaced her and his promises to her with the church, then Paul's prophetic words of Romans 11, 25, and 26 really become ludicrous. Because in those verses, he said that after the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, that all Israel shall be saved. That's in our New Testament. That's in Romans. Well, a historicist would say that God is finished with Israel and that all the promises to Israel will be fulfilled in the church. So every time Israel is mentioned in the New Testament, they need to replace it. We need to replace it with the church. So what Paul would be saying here is that after the fullness of the Gentiles... Be, after the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, and most of the church is Gentile, isn't it? Then all the church will be saved. That's what Paul would be saying. Now, isn't that ludicrous? Because the church is made up of all the saved believers. So it wouldn't make any sense at all. In Ezekiel um, chapter 36 and verse 22 and following, God made it known that in spite of Israel's evil and in spite of her corrupt ways, I mean, we admit she was evil. She was evil when she rejected her Messiah, God's son. And in spite of the fact that she doesn't deserve it, but do any of us deserve God's grace? Well, he said in Ezekiel that in spite of all this, yet he is going to restore her sons to their own land which is the land he swore to her forefathers and to the Israelites and their descendants. He said in this chapter, we'll live there forever. He said that he does this not for their sakes. Here's his direct quote. He says, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake. See, God will keep his promises to Israel in order to vindicate the holiness of his own name and to cause, of course, to cause Israel to finally recognize her Messiah, 
her redeemer. You know, the story of Joseph tells us that God isn't finished with Israel because at the end, didn't Joseph's brothers finally come back and recognize who he was and fall down before him? That's a picture of Jesus Christ and the nation of Israel. One day they finally will recognize who he is and fall down and, and worship him, the, the giver of the, bread, of the bread of life. That's a picture. We know that God isn't through with Israel. Also, the, um, the story of the dry bones, the valley of the dry bones in Ezekiel 38. If you want to study that, the bones have come back together. I think we're looking at the bones in Israel now come back together, standing up even with uh, flesh and sinews on them. This is a picture of Israel coming from the, the dead. You know, that nation was dead for centuries. Nobody except the true Christian who takes the Bible literally ever thought that Israel would be a, a nation again, that the Jews would be back in the land. But those bones have come back almost to life. They look like they're living, but see, they won't have the breath of life into them until the Lord Jesus himself returns and breathes on them the Holy Spirit when they look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as an only son and finally know who he is. So to believe that God is through with Israel leaves a person with really one of three alternatives. And I'm going to finish with this, and you'll have to just get the rest of what I have to say about this historicist method from your notes, okay? Um, let me just close with this. Leaves him with one of three alternatives. He must either deny the inspiration of the Scripture and conclude that where the Bible says that something yet future is going to happen to Israel, it's just a mistake. God didn't really mean that. So if you say that God didn't mean it and it's a mistake and he is through with Israel and when he says he isn't through and that he's going to do all these things, that's a mistake. Well, if you say that there is a mistake in the Bible, then you don't believe in the divine inspiration of the Scripture. So that's one option. For example, you know, in the book of Revelation when it talks about 144,000 Jewish evangelists, well, you have to make that up to be something else, like the Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, they say that's them. So you have to do something else with that. All right. Our second option is that you um, must neglect. If you don't want to say that there are mistakes in the Bible, then you must neglect the principle of literal interpretation. And this is what they have done. They have just spiritualized Israel away. It doesn't mean Israel. It means the church. Or the third option is that they can keep everything literal except to replace Israel with the church. I'm going to skip, um, oh, no, let me give you one other negative. Here's one other thing that they have to do. They have to change, they have to use a day-year theory. In other words, this means that when days are mentioned in any kind of apocalyptic literature, they say that years are really meant. And why do they find this necessary? What do they say? They say that the judgments of Revelation have been occurring for some 2,000 years now, right? Well, they have to do that because in the book of Revelation and in the book of Daniel, it clearly says seven-year tribulation period. And they're trying to stretch seven years into some 2,000 years. So by saying that when a day is meant, it really means a year, they are safe because they still, if you figure that out, they still have another 500 years before Christ needs to return and usher all of us into the eternal kingdom. So in using their day-year theory, they're safe in this regard because there's 500 more years before Christ's return. But they are inconsistent in their interpretation because if they do this same day-year method of interpretation with the apocalyptic book of Daniel, they are in trouble when they get to Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. We have a mini-study on that too. The greatest prophecy in all the word of God is in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 to 27 the 70 weeks prophecy if they are consistent in making a day mean a year in all apocalyptic literature this would mean that there are still another 170,000 years before Christ will be crucified 
Well, we know he was crucified 2,000 years ago. So they see that they have a problem, so they have to switch it around, and they are inconsistent in their interpretation. In other words, they use a day-year theory in Revelation, but they don't use a day-year theory in the book of Daniel. So you see, whenever you're inconsistent in your interpretation of Scripture, you're in trouble. Because God is consistent. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is not the author of confusion. And really, therefore, I reject, my conclusion is that I reject the historicist method of interpreting the scripture. I am totally convinced, down to my toes, that God is not finished with Israel. I am also totally convinced that we should take scripture literally. And I'll explain more about why I am convinced in the futuristic view of interpretation next week. That's what we'll look at next week. And then that won't take the whole time. Then I'm going to give you a big panoramic view of the book of Revelation. Okay, if I haven't put everybody into a coma, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I do so much. Thank you for the patience of these dear women. I know it's a technical lesson, but it's one that we so vitally need to understand. Father, I thank you that you have given us the book of Revelation. And as I see it and believe in it, Father, it is a panoramic prophecy of the future. And I see that when you give us details of future, you're showing us that you are truly a magnificent God who knows the end from the beginning, that you're sovereign, that you are in control of everything, that you are giving us great encouragement by knowing what will happen in the future and knowing these things should cause us to purify our lives and to live as godly as we can until that time comes when you call us to be with you and it should also cause us to have more of a burden for those who don't know you and will have to go through these horrible times of judgment here on earth and perhaps even into an eternal state without you now father as we mentioned in the goals of this study. It is our prayer, first and foremost, that every woman in this study would come to know you. And I pray, Father, that you would be knocking at the heart of any single woman in here, if she does not know you, Lord, that you would call her to yourself, that you would use your Holy Spirit and your precious word to draw her into your kingdom. We pray this, Lord, and give you all the glory for whatever you accomplish because you indeed are the teacher here we love you now we pray that you would bless us through mary and through Teresa's song for we pray in jesus name 